welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, August 19th, 2018, on the basis of Ephesians 4, verse 30 through 5, verse 2. In 1482, a young man who was from Florence, Italy, had recently moved just down the road to Milan and was looking for a job. So he decided to write a letter to the highest-ranking official in the city of Milan, describing for him everything that he was good at, all of the reasons why he should hire him. We'd say he submitted his resume. And in that letter, he outlined ten different things that he was interested in and especially skilled at, all of them sort of related to engineering. Designing buildings and bridges, making weapons and armored vehicles for warfare, Ten different things, but then, then way at the bottom of the letter, almost as an afterthought, he added this line. And oh, by the way, I can also paint. Why does any of that matter? Well, that young man who was looking for a job just happened to be named Leonardo da Vinci. And even if you know that Leonardo da Vinci was in fact interested in and very skilled at lots of different things, it remains without dispute that he is best known for being a painter. In fact, consider this, that there are just 15 known da Vinci paintings that are still in existence. And even though there are just that relatively small number, the two most famous paintings of all time can still be claimed by him. Number one on the list is indisputably the Mona Lisa. And yes, whether you're sitting way over there or way over there, she is looking directly at you. (laughs) Right behind the Mona Lisa is probably the Last Supper, especially ever since it was the subject of Dan Brown's best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code. Two most famous paintings of all time, even though just 15 of his are still in existence. Or maybe we can look at it from this perspective. Another painting of his known as Salvatore Mundi, Savior of the World, much less famous, but until recently, it was the last da Vinci painting to be privately owned. All the way up until 2017, when that owner put it up for auction, and it sold for a whopping $450 million, far and away the most money anyone has ever paid for a painting. And oh, by the way, I can also paint you think? Marketing experts today would probably say that da Vinci needed a little bit of advice, a little bit of help in how to build his personal brand. Identifying and communicating to others what clearly made him distinct, unique, the value that he brought to the table. I mean, burying that line about painting way at the bottom of the letter would be sort of like Bill Gates putting out an ad in which he was offering help in teaching people how to bake cupcakes. It would be sort of like Warren Buffett offering you all kinds of free advice about how to shave a couple of strokes off your golf score. Both of those men could very well be very good at each one of those things, but neither one of them is the thing for which they are best known. Neither one is the thing on which their personal brand, their identification is based. So when it comes to building a personal brand, do you think Jesus is any better. 2,000 years after the fact, when people hear the name Jesus, or when they think about Christianity, when they think about Jesus' church, what do you think pops into their head? 
Have we done a good job of identifying and conveying what makes Christianity distinct and the value that it brings to the table? When people think of Christianity, do you think that it is known for the thing for which Jesus would want it to be known? Maybe another way to ask that question would be this. What makes a person not just a good person, not just a nice person, but a Christian person? What makes you not just a good, attentive, engaged parent, but is a distinctively Christian parent? What makes you not just a good and faithful spouse, but, but a Christian spouse? What makes you not just a good, hard-working employee, not just a good, law-abiding citizen, but a, a distinctively Christian one of each one of those things? Today we're going to find out. We're wrapping up our, our series on the book of Ephesians, and we're in that second half of the book where Paul talks about all of the different ways in which God wants us to live as his children in this world. And in these verses, Paul is going to tell us about the thing that more than anything else makes us distinct as Christians. He really echoes in these verses exactly what you heard Jesus say in today's gospel, that by this, people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And as we look at these verses today, we're going to simply see this, that Jesus builds his personal brand around love. Now, that maybe sounds a bit surprising when you consider the fact that love is arguably the most overused word in the entire English language. We use love to describe our feelings toward everything, from pizza to the Green Bay Packers to a lovely sunset to our firstborn child. We love all of those things, right? So what does love really mean? Love has become so generic. How could someone possibly use it as the thing that makes them unique and distinct? And even aside from that, even within the realm of Christianity, within the realm of religion, there seem to be two competing views of love. On the one hand, one person might say that love means telling someone like it is. Telling it like it is to to your friend, your loved one, whoever it might be. Recognizing that there is, in fact, such a thing as right and wrong. There is, in fact, a design with which God made us, under which we will flourish and apart from which we will flounder. And love means helping people realize when they've wandered from the path that God intended. But another person might say that love simply means accepting someone for who they are, embracing and endorsing every decision that they might make, encouraging them to pursue whatever path might make them happiest. And so which of those is the correct definition of love? Well, that's the first thing we need to pay attention to carefully in these verses. Paul describes for us, outlines for us, the true definition of Christian love. And the very first thing that's clear from these verses is that there is an assumption that, yes, there is, in fact, a difference between right and wrong. There is a design with which God made us, under which we will naturally flourish as human beings and apart from which we will naturally flounder. The question in these verses is not if someone can choose a path that is actually wrong and sinful and apart from God's will. The real question is, what do you do when that happens? How do you respond? And here's what Paul says. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
So when someone sins, maybe even sins specifically against you, rather than letting that bubble up inside of you until it just comes boiling over into a fit of rage, Paul says three things. First, be kind. Be useful, be beneficial to that other person. Rather than worrying about how their sin might somehow harm you, their good, their interest should be your number one concern. Be kind. Secondly, Paul says, be compassionate. He says, realize that when someone is sinning, even when they're sinning directly against you, the person that they are hurting most will always be themselves. If God really has created us with a very specific design under which we will naturally flourish, then anytime someone deviates from that design and that plan, they are only bringing destruction into their lives. So realize that, recognize that, have compassion on them. And then finally Paul says, forgive them. Rather than insisting that someone pay, rather than insisting that someone suffer for what they have done, simply choose not to make them. Even if that means that the person who suffers and the person who is damaged, the person who is hurt, is you. Choose not to hold a grudge. Choose not to seek revenge. Choose not to lash out in anger. Choose not to go blabbing about it all over town. Paul says, be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving. So, to be a Christian parent. On the one hand, doesn't mean that you simply embrace every decision and every path that your child might choose. But, but on the other hand, being a Christian spouse means not insisting that your spouse suffer, that your spouse pay every time they do you wrong so that they really learn their lesson. Being a Christian friend doesn't mean encouraging someone to follow whatever path might make them happiest. But being a Christian citizen means that as we think about all the sin and all the evil in the world, our primary concern is not how it might possibly harm us. You see how both of the normal definitions of love don't quite hit the nail on the head. Paul's definition of love combines the best of both of them without falling into the pitfalls of each. It's a perfect combination of being fully convinced that God has created us with this beautiful design, wanting people to live and flourish underneath it, and yet at the same time being kind, compassionate, and forgiving when they do not. Jesus builds his personal brand around love, and that's specifically how Paul defines love in these verses. So do you think it'll work? How do you think it'll be received out there in the world? I'm guessing it'd be pretty easy for us to think that, that the brand, so to speak, of Christianity has taken such a beating in recent years, maybe in part because of our own doing, that probably the best thing to do is kind of just leave that part of our lives sort of hidden, sort of tucked away where no one can see. Why not just be a good, engaged parent, a good, faithful spouse, a good, hard-working employee, a good, law-abiding citizen, instead of being a distinctively Christian one of any of those things? Well, aside from making clear the definition of love in these verses, Paul also talks about the impact that this love is going to have. And he does that in two ways. First of all, he says that when we walk in love like this, we are following God's example as his dearly loved children. Kids love imitating 
mom and dad, don't they? They love acting like them. They love talking like them. They like pretending that they have the same jobs as mom and dad do. And of course, when our children imitate us, that can be both good and bad. We know that full well, right? But, but imagine what it would be like when the parent that a child is imitating is God. Imagine you go to a, a football game this coming Friday night, and you sort of watch and observe all the children who are running around having fun at that football game. And out of all of the ones who are there, there's one that just absolutely stands out, this one child that is completely respectful and completely polite to all of the adults who are there trying to watch the game. This one child who is completely considerate and compassionate toward the rest of the children who are there playing, that that when another child gets teased or another child slips and falls in the little game that they're playing, this child stops and helps and is a friend. And this child just stands out in every way imaginable. I'm guessing if you saw something like that, you would not only be impressed with that child, but you would think to yourself, Who are that kid's mom and dad? What kind of parent raises a child like that? And Paul says that when we walk in love, that's the reaction that people are going to have. What kind of father, what kind of God has children as loving as that? The second way is is maybe even more striking. Paul says that when we are kind, compassionate, and forgiving, that that goes up to God as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to him. That when we are kind, compassionate, and forgiving, it's like this beautiful fragrance that wafts in the air up to heaven and fills God's nose with this pleasing smell. You maybe know that a person's scent is one of the most distinctive features about them. You can make yourself look a lot like someone else. You can make yourself sound a lot like someone else by imitating their voice. But a person's scent is pretty distinct. And again, we we all know that can be good and bad, right? But, But God says that when we love like this, this is a smell that goes out and goes up that is even pleasing to God himself. Imagine just how it will be perceived by the people of this world. Paul is saying that when we walk in love, we are giving people a glimpse of something that is not just unique, not just different, not just one of a kind, but something that is truly otherworldly, something that is truly divine. And so it's no wonder that Jesus builds his personal brand around this kind of love. Of course, maybe you're realizing that there's a bit of a problem. And it's not just a bit of a problem. This is Jesus' plan, but we are the ones he has entrusted with executing it. And it doesn't take a whole lot of difficult thinking to realize and to reflect on how often we have failed to demonstrate this kind of love. How often we have maybe seen someone making an absolute mess of their lives and just sort of looked the other way. Thought, who am I to say something? I'll I'll just let them be. Or maybe on the flip side, we've come across that sin. Maybe we've even been affected by it. And it's like that little pilot light of anger is lit in our hearts and it just grows and grows and gets hotter and hotter until it comes bubbling over in anger. We lash out. We seek revenge. We hold a grudge. We we blab all over town about what has happened. We pontificate on social media. Maybe all of the above. Either one of those is love. 
On paper, Jesus' plan sounds really good, but in practice, not so much. And friends, that's why we need to remember where we've been and where we are in this letter. That's why we need to once again remember where we stand with God and why we stand there. Far from ever being able to reach the point where we can say that we've, we've arrived, we are finally loving like Christ, we are forced to go back again and again to the fact that we are loved by Christ. Long before Jesus decided to build his personal brand around our love for others, Jesus built his personal brand around his love for us. Jesus looked out into an an entire world full of people that he had created, that he had designed to flourish in a very specific way, but people who had become convinced that another plan and another design was way, way better. And Jesus didn't look the other way. Jesus didn't turn his back and just let us be. He also didn't simply lash out in anger or really let us have what we had coming. Instead, he was kind, he was compassionate, he was forgiving. Our interest was his interest. Our hurt became his hurt. Our payment for the damage that we had caused by our sin, he took on himself and he paid in full. And friends, he did all of this for you. And once again, just like we saw last week, this is sort of the hidden beauty of the fact that we'll never get this quite right. That we'll never reach the mountaintop to be able to say, finally, we've done it. Finally, we are loving people exactly the way that Jesus wanted us to. Again and again, we are driven back to the love that God has for us. And again and again, we will be reminded that what makes us who we are, what defines us, what makes us distinct is not the love that we show for others, but the love that Jesus has for us. And as long as we know that, as long as we are communicating that very clearly to the world around us, Jesus' personal brand will be just fine. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.